Hi, welcome to the special edition Sienna Solstice podcast. We're a multimedia journal which integrates art and science into one cohesive publication. I'm Leia, one of the editors of Sienna Solstice. In this podcast, we'll break down the arbitrary lines separating science and art and continue exploring the idea of the anti-disciplinary, our belief that no medium of expression deserves to be grouped in a discipline. We met with a historian of science and a scientific and medical illustrator to discuss their careers and talk about ideas surrounding the interdependence of science and art. Please join us for this special edition podcast. In this first interview, we met with Paula Finlan, a historian of science and professor of history at Stanford University. In her career, Professor Finland has studied the early history of science and medicine, as well as documenting the world of the Renaissance. Listen in as fellow Siena Solstice editor Kate and I discuss the mutual exploration of truth, the many ways to cultivate diversity, and much more in this interview with Paula Finland. And also, stay tuned to the end of the podcast for some life advice from our interviewee. This is something I'm always happy to talk about. So history of science is a great example of these kinds of subjects that most people have not encountered before college. And you may or may not encounter in college too, of course, but I did. And so it's always easier to look at these things in hindsight, right? Hindsight makes everything clear. I was that kind of student in high school who took every AP science class, but I never planned to be a scientist. So why was I taking these classes? You know, I was curious about these things and I liked challenging myself but I was always taking art classes, and not just in high school. I was taking classes at the local arts college. I was going into the big city. I lived in a small town, but one of my biggest treats when I was in high school was the summer that my big birthday present was to take summer drawing classes at the Art Students League in New York. I mean, this was amazing when I was, whatever, 15 or 16, especially because it was the 70s. So I, I guess in my own experience, I never really chose. I never sort of said, oh, I only like the visual, right? Or I only like the historical. I had a great love of the past that was utterly unfulfilled by any history class I took in high school. My impression of the past, and again, I say this with no disrespect to a lot of wonderful high school history teachers, because every year I meet students who have had great high school history, but I have to say I didn't. My best teachers were in other areas in high school. So the high school in history didn't interest me. And yet, for various reasons that had nothing to do with school, I think I was very interested in the past. So somehow, history of science, when I then discovered it, became this interesting place for me to explore the past and, yeah, to see science in a different way. I think it fulfilled my interest in that ultimately what became clear to me in college was that I, I was not interested in any one particular science, so I started off on the advanced mathematics stuff, but I could quickly see that I was not going to be a math major like some of my friends taking those classes, that, you know, one or two of those were enough, right? I love, I still love biology. I love dissecting, I love thinking about a lot of the things in biology. But I never could see myself becoming a biologist or a chemist. So I could really see that it didn't make sense for me to major or double major in any one science. But I was still left with this kind of unfulfilled love of science. So the history of science is fundamentally the history of knowledge, right? What is knowledge? How does it evolve and change over time? How do we use it as an instrument and also a perspective to come to some understanding of the world, right? Science is ever evolving. The science today will absolutely 
be the science of somebody's past and the future, and they will see the limits and the blind spots as well as the good building blocks of whatever it is they're doing. But it could be related to what we're doing, or it could be a complete gestalt shift, right? It could be something completely different. And so that really fascinated me. And I fell, I think like many people in the history of science, I fell in love with the idea that this was a field where I could really think about why and how people changed how they understood something, you know. What made you wake up one day and think, we've been talking about the cosmos a particular way for a long time, and yeah, we have a few questions, but you know, it pretty much works. We can roughly calculate with this. We can do a calendar. So why change it? Why come up with something that is less literally our own everyday experience? I don't I don't go outside and stand on the ground and feel like the earth is moving beneath me. So what are the mental steps or practical or quantitative or observational steps by which we then come to see that we should think about the world in ways that are not literally intuitive or directly a product from our own experience, but are something much more complex than that. So for me, that's an example of what's really interesting about the history of science. And maybe as a last thing to say, just in this prolegomena, I realized that many of many of the, the scientific disciplines that we take for granted are really quite modern. So for many, many centuries long before us, people didn't think about biology because biology is a word that comes into existence circa 1800. Maybe doesn't really even have full freight until later in the 19th century. So there, there are a lot of or words that we think of like chemistry meant something different that's closer to alchemy, but that doesn't mean it's all bunk either, you know. And so what about these other disciplines that we don't think of as science anymore, like magic? So that was really fascinating to think that there were disciplines like alchemy and magic and astrology that weren't just simply kind of crazy ideas, you know, stupid people had, but they actually were fully worked out scientific systems that were meaningful, that actually had the seeds of things we do now. So again, how did that happen? How did magic become science? That's a big history of science question for those of us who like to dig you know, more deeply into the past than the recent history of science. I saw in your Stanford biography that you, you said you take enormous pleasure in examining a kind of scientific knowledge that did not have an autonomous existence from other kinds of creative endeavors. And, you know, at Siena Solstice, part of our mission is really finding the reliance of the arts on science and vice versa. And I was wondering if you could elaborate more on what you mean by the scientific knowledge that can't exist from other kinds of creative endeavors. Because I think most people don't really see science as something that is creative or relies on creativity. It's more of a logical thing. But you touched on how you have to think about things that aren't really intuitive, like the way the earth is spinning when we don't really see that with our own eyes. So yeah, I guess in your eyes, what makes science so reliant upon creativity and art? A simple way to put this is is what I like to call the Leonardo effect. After all, I'm also a historian. The period that's kind of my center of gravity is the age of Leonardo, what people often call the Renaissance. And and so Leonardo is a great example. What is he? Is he an artist? Is he an engineer? Is he a scientist? Is he an anatomist? What kind of scientist is he? Because he seems to like a lot of different sciences. Uh, 
But he connects them all to his art. He also plays uh, the lute, as it turns out. So he's not uninterested in music as well, though that's probably the least important of the things he is doing. And he certainly loves literature, poetry. He ultimately is inspired in the middle of his life to broaden his education and also to deepen it. And, and out of that aspires to become an author, even though he then decides to never print any of his writings or really even fully finish them. So he leaves us these notebooks. So we tend to hold Leonardo up as this embodiment of the Renaissance man, the universal genius. There's a perennial fascination with Leonardo, and I, I share that. I'm a complete Leonardo geek. But the, the point I want to make is that actually there are a lot of Leonardos out there. And, and what I mean by that is not that there are a lot of other people drawing and thinking exactly the way Leonardo did. You know, that there are certainly some people who share some of what he does. But there are a lot of people like that who cross what we perceive to be boundaries that they did not perceive to be boundaries. So, for instance, all right, one of the very famous astronomers of the 17th century, uh, uh, a German astronomer named Johannes Kepler. You know, in, now in a textbook, you're going to get Kepler's laws, right? You're going to learn that Kepler is the first person who actually not only realized, i.e. intuited, but actually calculated and proved quantitatively that orbits are elliptical not perfect circles, right, as Plato, as Galileo, as Aristotle, as Ptolemy, as a lot of people had been saying. And okay, so great, right, right. So he's a fantastically, he, he's, he's just this guy who is perfectly fusing astronomy, observational astronomy with a, still a pretty new instrument, the telescope, with physics and mathematics, right? Very interesting fusion. What we're not talking about when we talk about that Kepler is a guy who is also on a quest for the music of the spheres, right, for the harmonic sounds of the heavens. And if you go online today, you can find, I'm sure by now it must be online, but you can find these recordings of what Kepler believes is the sound of the orbit of the different planets that he has, you know, he's not just calculated it, he's written down the musical sound. So that to us doesn't fit a model of what a modern astronomer does, though you know maybe there we could say there are hints of that still in modern cosmology. But as a technical discipline, right, we don't think, oh, you know, an astronomer or a physicist or mathematician is going to sit down and do this. Well, but but if you start looking around, you actually discover there are a lot of interesting echoes of a kind of project that's much more explicit in Kepler's time or Leonardo's time about how one makes all those different connections and. There, there are other examples like that I could offer. Here, I'll throw out another example that's just a bit later than either Leonardo or Kepler. Isaac Newton, right? Sir Isaac, you know, big guy, right, in the history of science. Definitely work a lot, worth a lot of boxes in our textbooks for key subjects we all learn. And people write popular biographies of Newton all the time. And I, I don't know, I mean, if the two of you ask yourselves, don't we think of him as the embodiment of the modern scientist, right? He's the beginning of what is a modern scientist. And okay, but so how do we reconcile the perception we have of Newton that he is the origins of a certain kind of modern 
science that is mathematicized, that fully builds on the work of Kepler and Galileo and Descartes, and really comes up with this kind of new way of understanding gravity. How do we reconcile that very modern Newton, the beginnings of us, with a Newton who writes a million words of alchemy, a million words, and even more words on theology. He writes more on theology and alchemy than he ever writes on physics or mathematics, or that calculus that he co-founds with Leibniz, or let alone astronomy, which is not actually his primary subject. So how do we reconcile that? We have to understand, then, where does science fit into, where do the modern aspects of, as we see it, of Newton's science fit into somebody who's on a long quest for God and truth in nature and in his reading of all these biblical texts? That's a very unmodern Newton. And yet it's the same person. So a historical approach to that pushes you not to divide them, not to split him up and only look at one and not the other, but to reconcile them. That's really interesting. So I think it seems like today we have these sorts of ideas of scientists or these kind of stereotypes, perhaps, through the idea of the nerd, right? Or the the kind of entertainment idea of the mad scientist from Frankenstein, the idea of just completely disregarding factors of life or more moral approach and just doing things for the sake of science. And it, it seems that this is sort of like an erasure, if that's the word that I could use, for really what is science as a whole and how we think that it connects to art is this entire exploration of truth, right? Uh, whether that's truth on a relative level, on a personal level, on a grander scale. One of the things that, that I spoke on in a, in a prior interview with a poet was that the connection between all the disciplines and this idea of the connection between arts and literature and science and everything in between is this, this universal exploration towards the idea of truth. In what way that comes, it's, that's different, right? So we see artists exploring Perhaps we had we featured one submission, which was a Japanese artist, and she had these multimedia film sculptures that included her own body. And, and it was exploring this very personal truth that had a lot of resonance, right? And somehow that seemed to be different than another truth of exploring maybe the the protein structure in a certain type of plant and how that can affect our health and how we can integrate that into modern health. When really, as you said, about all these different past scientists or notable scientists that we study that, that we've kind of erased that other dimension of they're exploring these ideas of science and these broad questions because they have these underlying humanistic or underlying unexplained artistic truths that they're trying to explore. And they're actively bringing them in to the way they do their science, too. You know, So there are many aspects of science that actually really require not just only visual training and acuity, but a visual imagination to sort of see those things, to look at them in that kind of story. An artist is not just somebody who, who realizes what you can see with the help of an instrument. In an age before photography, the artist is your partner because you're not, you're not able to take your own photograph. Or maybe you yourself do the drawings, you know, and but then somebody has to realize them as a print or an engraving or something. But in, in a number of instances, like I, I've been doing a whole project on a painter who actually writes one of the really important early studies of fossils. 
And of course, he not only writes the book, but he does his own illustrations and then works with a friend who is a specialist in engraving, right? Because I think he does a bit of engraving, but not enough that he would consider his engraving up to his own artistic standards, you know? And these are remarkable fossil illustrations that do all sorts of things that, that not only have people not understood Fossils, that term originally means things dug up from the ground. It doesn't mean that it is, you know, either the remnant or the mold of a once living being that may or may not resemble living being now. There are a lot of steps we have to go through before people think of fossils that way. And this guy from Sicily is like at the early beginnings. And I think that he actually really fully recognizes that that his artistic skills, right, his visual understanding of the world and his ability to render it combined with having decided to read and learn and think and be willing to write it up, you know, gives him a kind of leg up that he really is trying to create these kind of dynamic portraits, fossils, to get you to see that 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 really is a fragment of a shark's tooth or the crushed body shell of a sea urchin or whatever it once was, right, that's now been fossilized in the ground over, again, they, they can't entirely think of the, how long the time frame is in that period, but he can look and he can learn and he can ask questions. And the history of science and art, which is one of the areas I'm especially interested in, is just full of these kinds of moments where we're having visual skills of some kind, being able to understand things in this way, or, or having other kinds of, of craft skills, you know, how to make things with your hands. You've actually done that. You've used these materials. You've manipulated this matter. But now you're stepping back and you're looking, what kind, you're asking questions about what is its nature? And, but I think you look at it in different ways. If you've had that kind of experience and training, then you do without it. So it ends up being, you know, quite an asset and, and not one that's restricted to some pre-modern world that has Leonardo's and really no clear boundaries in, between disciplines. But yeah, I think those earlier worlds make that clearer because science is not yet a profession. The word scientist is an, a word from the 19th century. There were no scientists. There were people doing science, whatever they thought science was, but there were no scientists until the 19th century. So I wonder, I think that brings up an important question of this conception of, of science and a scientist. We kind of have these images in our head of a person in a lab behind a microscope strictly studying logical ideas like cell structures and biology. But I wonder, do you think that that conception of science is an impetus to progress? Because you mentioned that, you know, Kepler had this music of the universe, and you wouldn't traditionally think of that as a as a discipline of science. So is this conception of the traditional science, does it hinder people's ability to think creatively and in innovative ways that lead to different ways of looking at the world and science? I kind of generally think that as you decide like what path you want to pursue, you have always a responsibility to learn whatever are the current specialized skills of that field. You, you have to master those skills. So if it's really understanding the nature of a cell, how to crunch data in a particular way, how to use certain programs that will allow you to read this data, how to set up the experiment, how to work with a particularly complex, delicate instrument, right? So you have to learn those skills. But I think the point I would make is that if you restrict your thinking to only that, 
you may become very accomplished at doing that, right? I mean, you could succeed very, very well, but you're more inclined to succeed in a narrow sense. I think if you leave yourself open, perhaps even without having a clear sense of what it means to be open to other things, you always create the possibility that something else might get you to see this entire enterprise differently or that bringing something else into it might add value to what you're doing, might solve a problem that you can't solve, might allow you to even see a problem that you can't see without that other perspective. And I, I want to offer a really simple analogy. And, you know, this is, this is something I actually will say I remember more from a film than our own experiences going fishing. But there's this great film called A River Runs Through It, you know, young Brad Pitt. And he, he and his brother, they, everybody's into fly fishing, right? It's Montana in the early 20th century. But there's this moment where they talk about how he breaks free, right? Why the character Brad Pitt plays is so truly great beyond the ordinary, even in a world of great fly fishermen. is because he's mastered the skills and he's broken free from them. He's gone beyond them. And when you think about, like, when we talk about how somebody is a really good musician, right, or a really great dancer, or a really great athlete, it's often that same pattern. You've mastered the skills, and you've gone beyond that to find something else, to take yourself into a different plane. I think that's actually a really valuable thing to learn no matter what you do. And all the more so if the skills that you have are very kind of technical, you know, that adding that extra thing reminds you that it's not only about that. Now, I'll quote a famous phrase from not one of the women scientists I've studied, because this is, she's way too contemporary, but from one of the 20th century American women scientists in, you know, in, in, in the life sciences, Barbara McClintock, you know, very famous. And when she was asked about what had given her the special insight that led to her acclaim as a scientist, she said simply that she had a feeling for the organism. That's not technical, but I think it's very insightful in suggesting that extra layer that we cannot quantify that may sometimes get you to an entirely different plane of thinking about things. That brings up another idea that I remember listening to another podcast, Hidden Brain, which is part of an NPR podcast. And one of the episodes was talking about how research and just general collaboration, more ideas come from collaboration between people from diverse perspectives. So they used an example about just plain research within, within academia, when you have people from different nationalities, from universities that are in different countries, they end up solving problems in different ways because they bring in these different perspectives. And so that episode focused a lot more on the benefits of diversity and diversity of perspective that each individual brings. But I think that also can be connected to what you were saying earlier about the diversity of perspective of how we can answer questions in science or answer questions in literature through connecting them and through our own personal understandings with other disciplines and merging those intrinsic ideas together. I really like that. I mean, what you're saying in essence is that, you know, there are are fundamentally two kinds of diversity we can cultivate. And one is the diversity that we achieve by working with a broad array of people who are not us, right? Whatever that means. They live in a different part of the world. They just are different in some sense. And then together, we're more than the sum of our parts. But the other is, what, what is the diversity you can cultivate within yourself? And that, that actually allows you to sometimes see the same thing from more than one perspective. And, you know, 
I think some people are more drawn to that approach, just like some people are more drawn to collaborative research and other people prefer a solitary and more singular path. I mean, there's an element of personality as well as opportunity, (laughs) you know, opportunity plus inclination equals what will happen. And again, each one has its virtues, but I think I am advocating that I think history of science tends to draw people who liked that diversity of perspective even if they also like collaborative research too, which I do. I do a lot of collaborative work. But that that's not something that I was thinking about when I first got interested in the subject because I wasn't yet working then. I was just being a student and taking things and seeing what happened. We like to explore this idea that we're anti-disciplinary. So the idea that there is no interdisciplinary and that you're not mixing between disciplines, but you're actually just kind of putting everything in a pot and seeing how everything interacts with itself. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you know, over time, then you see, like, what does your pot have more of or less of, you know, because that's going to be your particular equation, right? We all have to find our own particular equation. Well, what you have brought to mind by saying that is, is my takeaway from a talk I heard some years ago by a colleague whose you know, colleague came out. She's a medievalist. Her source of creativity as a medieval historian is to really seriously bring together history and archaeology. Like Archaeology is a very technical discipline. You have to learn how to dig. You have to write up the reports. You have to learn how to do bioarchaeology, core samples, measuring, all sorts of things, right? So people write very technical papers. If you're not in that field, you have to learn their language to read it and then to think about how to incorporate that. But you still might not do something super interesting with it. And so then the real skill is having learned these things from another discipline, how do you then write a completely different kind of history? And she did, and we clearly were not the only fans because the MacArthur Foundation thought she was. So Robin Fleming, who's her name, she's at Boston College. She came out and gave a great talk about writing history from bones. And, you know, we'd asked her to come and talk about how she does what she does and, you know, and, and with a particular eye to students kind of being inspired by different methodologies. And so after I listened to Robin and the discussion we had in this great seminar, I said, all right, if I can boil this down to one sentence, I think what you're saying, thinking particularly of history and archaeology is dig inside the box while thinking outside of it. And she agreed, you know, and, and, and I love that. I actually am really so happy that that talk gave me that idea that what we all should be doing is digging in the mocks, but thinking, always thinking outside of it. And of course, I probably said that for the reasons you've heard in this half hour discussion we've had, which is that I think I already was already, already kind of inclined to want to do that myself, but I don't do history and archaeology. So that made it much clearer to me in a way that I hadn't expected and wouldn't have known if I hadn't gone to that talk on a subject that has nothing to do with my own research, but seemed like it would be very interesting. That interview with Professor Finland touched on many interesting topics, one of them being the historical interdependence of scientists and artists. And in this next interview, Rukan and I met with one of these artists. Akumi Kayama is a medical and scientific illustrator using art to communicate or filter obscure scientific concepts. Having earned degrees in scientific illustration and medical and biological illustration from the University of Georgia and John Hopkins University, she produces award-winning work that can be found in textbooks, websites, journals, and science exhibits. Join us in conversation with Akumi, who we think is the perfect manifestation of Siena Stolsis's mission. Okay, so... I 
always liked art. So I learned English as a second language, so I'm Japanese. So when I was in second grade, we moved to the US, and that's when I kind of found out my limited English didn't take me very far. So <laughs> looking back, that's, that's when I was kind of like, oh, there's something really magical in the drawings. And you don't have to come from the same place or have the same cultural background to understand a drawing. So I was like, I want to be an artist when I grow up. Of course, when you're a little kid and you want to be an artist, the first thing that the teachers and the adults say is, oh, but you're not going to have a job. That's not how you make money. And I was like, I guess, I guess that's an important thing. So, <laughs> so University of Georgia is where I went for college and they happen to have a scientific illustration major. It's basically taking major level biology classes and anatomy courses. In addition to studio art courses, you're getting both major level classes. It's not quite a double major. It's called interdisciplinary studies. And I really liked looking under a microscope and drawing the insects. And insects never die in their anatomical position. So you have to sketch a part and then you turn an angle and get the right angle on the next leg and, and so forth. And it was so much fun. So I really got into that. Then my college advisor told me about medical illustration. He basically said, well, you know, scientific illustration is, you know, natural sciences in general, but medical illustration is more just for humans and pathology, anatomy, like how do you communicate when people are not feeling great? Which reminded me of the time when I was still new in the US. I had asthma as a kid and I get sick. And so my parents wanted to take me to the hospital, but it's really hard to express medical terminology. Like, how do you say wheezing or shortness of breath? And it's super embarrassing to sit there being sick, watching your parents struggle next to you. So I thought, can I do medical illustration and possibly help people like that? You know, trying to communicate, trying to connect the patients to the doctors and vice versa. So I ended up going to Hopkins, which is a two-year graduate program. And it's part of the medical school. So you are in the medical campus. You're taking anatomy classes with the med students and bunches of other science classes with graduate students. And you have a dedicated studio space where you have real skeletons and models and all kinds of resources. So it was a really fun two years. It was grueling, it was really intense, but I really enjoyed it. I was getting ready to graduate and economy crashed. It was 2008, <laughs> so no one was hiring. So I was like, I'll just give myself like a year of freelancing and see where that goes. So I started out doing surgical illustration textbooks and some patient education work. And I'm trying to squeeze in my natural history love as much as I could. So I really like the variety also doing freelance work because you don't know what you're going to get next. One day I could be drawing the glioblastoma marformi and the temporal lobe of the brain. And then the next day is about the feet structure of a sparrow, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's very different, but the basic idea is the same where my role is an expert in taking the information that is there and with the collaboration with the experts and the educators, they'll say, this is the information we need to crystallize. And this is the stuff that we want to highlight. That's kind of how my specialty fits in is I can take the written and the verbal and various other resources and put it into one cohesive illustration. And so in your TED talk, you spoke on this importance of making science and medicine, first of all, more personal and also more approachable and also 
to get over any barriers, language barriers, or what else that is blocking an individual from understanding these kind of abstract topics. I kind of understood this because a challenge that we as publishers face is not only making science, but also fine art or poetry accessible to all of the different readers who come from different facets of life. So I'd love to hear you speak more on how your career has contributed to making both science and art more accessible and what you feel the inherent value is in widening the scope of scientific and medical understanding. That's a great question. So making the illustrations, it's very hands-on with the experts, but I don't really get to hand out the textbooks personally, so <laughs> it's really hard to convey that there are specialized illustrators making these illustrations that you see pretty much everywhere. I guess it's like one of those things where if it's done well, you don't notice. So I only get very few feedback from the patients or the students. And they're always very personal and very touching. So there's one story I shared on my TEDx talk about one of the students I had whose mother passed away from having a heart disease and no one in the family really understood what that meant. And she was like, oh, I wish I'd seen your pictures and understood what's going on with her heart so we could understand what's going on to like potentially do something differently. But she was like, I'm happy that I know what was going on because it was a very big gray area of like, like everybody has a heart but not everybody knows what the parts do or you know what goes wrong it's just being able to make that connection of oh this is what I heard but now I can see it and I think the illustration also helps in getting the person to be a little bit more involved since the illustrations pretty approachable so hopefully something will click in their minds that funny Thing that I often have to work with the experts is because experts, they are experts, they know so much, and they want to show everything at once, right? So the challenge is instead of throwing 10 things at the viewer, we want to make sure even one or two ideas at a time is actually more effective than having like a really packed figure. So that's kind of simplifying to reach the, the right audience. And that's a challenge that a lot of scientists face. And I think where we fit in as illustrators is, yes, there's all these information, but let's pare it down. That's how I personally try to make it a little bit more approachable, I hope. Would you say that you see yourself as a sort of translator from this, these hyper-focused specialties to either the individual or just the general public? Yeah, translation is a really good word. I also like to use the word filter because I'm like taking all this information. Sometimes the professor will give me 10 papers to read, but in the end we want two drawings. So <laughs> how do I pare this information down to two drawings for a specific audience? Because the illustration I'll create for the professor's class of residents or surgeons will be very different from what I'll create for the patients and their families. So yeah, translation is really good comparison. So. Leia talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but she mentioned something about art and science being dependent on each other, and that's kind of the whole point behind Sienna Solstice. So as a scientific illustrator, your career is the perfect manifestation of our mission statement. So in the many years that you've been a scientific illustrator, how have you come to see the dependence of science on art and art on science? 
they're so interconnected. You can't separate them out because I like to read about old scientists and a lot of them were artists themselves. They had to be able to draw to see and record what they had before photographs. In a way, every scientist is an artist most of the time. There's a lot of science behind pigments and how we perceive color and how there's more、uh, cells in your eyeballs to sense lights and darks versus color. So I'm also trying to play to that because I know all these things. And I'm trying to tell my artist friends hey, if you get the light to the dark scale correctly, the colors don't matter as much. It's a weird optical illusion trick, but you can totally put a different color than you would see in nature. But if the grayscale is correct, then it looks fine. So I like to like play on that, which reminds me of the thing is art is said to be right brained and science is said to be left brained. So we have to say we use both sides of our brain, right? Because we're combining the science and the art. So, what I struggle with is sometimes science gets super dry and boring, even though it's really cool. You just have to tell it all differently. And I think that's like a super disservice because you, even if you do brilliant research, if you can't tell it and get everybody excited about it, then it just kind of fades into the darkness. Like, how do we get this more exciting? Here at Santa Solstice, we have a bit of a tradition where at the end of every interview, we ask our interviewee what advice they would give to their younger selves. So here is Paula Finlan and Akumi Kayama, both respectively, giving advice to their younger selves. Oh, this, it's always a good question. You know, people say this a lot, but figuring out your passions, right, and allowing them to change. So, what I didn't know going into college is I didn't know that I was going to conclude by the end that while I was good at art and might even make a living doing, say, commercial art, I probably wasn't good enough to really take the risk of trying to become an artist. But I concluded that by the end of college, that that, that was where the, my abilities in that area were. And so, in other words, I think being able to assess, you know, that. that It's great to discover that we're not good at everything. I think it's really great to understand what you're not good at while you figure out what you, what you like, what you love, and yeah, what you're good at. And some of the things that you love they, they, they are not going to be your career, but they're going to be something that, that fulfills you in other ways and, and comes back like pirouettes in and out of your life, basically. You know, I, I, I find myself recently thinking I want to go back to taking drawing classes after many years of not doing it because I didn't do it for a living. If you leave yourself open to stuff, you see where it takes you. And I always say, I, you know, look, I majored ultimately after this whole discussion of my major was in medieval and Renaissance studies. That is the most useless goddamn major on the face of the planet. But it is delightful. And if I hadn't done it, And I didn't do it thinking, I, I'm going to do that and find a way to make it a career. I assumed it was not a career, capital, not a career. In fact, I was told repeatedly by adults this was the craziest thing I could major in. The point being, I, I knew that, and I was all set to then figure out like, how I would translate those skills into something practical. And what a lot of people often don't understand, and I think I can say this now in retrospect, well, so in retrospect, I can say if I hadn't taken that risk, And continued to pursue the fact I found it interesting. And as it turned out, I was actually pretty good at it. I would never have the career I have today. There are not a lot of these careers, but I actually got one of them. And I would never have known that. I didn't expect that I would. 
I'm still grateful every day that I got that chance to translate a passion into a career. Couldn't have happened if I hadn't tried that. But the other side of, of, of that as well is to say, you know, so what if that hadn't happened, which was my plan? What if that hadn't happened? Well, I would be, I don't know what, a lawyer, you know, a, a librarian. I would be somebody, somebody doing something else who still loved you know, that early history of science, that past that drew me to this very interdisciplinary and esoteric field, you know, and this is what I wanted to say is the last kind of comment on that about what I think students often don't realize, you know, people come into to college and 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 the the tendency is because it is the safer thing to do. So then, so therefore it is not bad, right? It's not to be disparaging. Maybe what's right for you is major in something predictable with the most predictable outcome, and that will be the safest and surest path to success. And all of that is good advice, so I would never mitigate against that advice. But I will say this, that I told myself then that if I went to job interviews, and people said, as they inevitably would, because they asked me all the time, why did you major in dot, 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 because it was kind of weird. And I said to myself, even then, if I have a good answer, they're going to remember that. And rather than being one of 5,000 people who majored in economics, I'm the medieval Renaissance studies major who took economics and knows how to count and calculate and do stuff, right? That's something different. I didn't do it because of that. I did it because I loved it. But I also understood that you can flip that love into, you know, being something that's distinctively you, you know, and it's the same thing. Pre-med, if any of you are thinking of going to medical school, Everyone majors in biology or chemistry or biochemistry and because it's the default. And if that's or human biology, if that's what you love, of course, you should major in that. Don't go find some weird major that's not you just to be different. I mean, that won't work. You're not going to thrive on that. But, you know, if actually you like something else, that's what medical schools love. And I routinely write for students who are majoring in, you know, history or Italian and they do the pre-med and Here's the newsflash. They get into as good a medical school as anyone else, if not better, because they looked a little different. So keep that in mind, right? It doesn't, there are different paths, you know, to arriving at what you want. You just have to figure it out and figure out what works for you. I say keep your mind open and also don't try to do everything. It's actually better if I say, I want to do these three things. So when I first started out my illustration business, I said, I'll do bones, bugs, and birds. And that's it. And <laughs> it didn't work that great. But having that focus kind of helped me figure out who to talk to or where to go next. And of course, I refined from there. But having a starting point is sometimes really hard. I hear a lot from students, I'm open for anything, and I'm interested in everything. And I say, think about it, <laughs> because probably not everything. Even people that are interested in scientific illustration, I like science in general, but I'm not the biggest fans of dinosaurs or space. I'll illustrate those, but that's not what I was like initially drawn to. So even within this very niche of scientific illustration, there's further niches that you can get into. <laughs> and once you start getting into a niche of a niche of a niche of a niche, there's only like five people that are really good at it. So once you kind of dig a little bit under the surface, then it's really faster and easier to get, get a hold of people that are doing what you want to do. And it 
And when you get to that point, they're really excited to talk about the, what they love with you. So I was a weird kid that would like, ooh, I found a deer bone in the woods. And everybody else is like, that's so gross. Or I was like, there's a dead bird on the road. I need to pick it up. But once I found out about this uh, niche of scientific illustration, I went to the conference and one of the first conversations I had was, so such and such has an octopus in the freezer and we're trying to figure out how best to position it for the drawing purposes. <laughs> and I was like, I found my people. The world seems so big, but few layers down, your people just kind of shrinks down exponentially. And that's a really good place to start. That was a really long way of saying it doesn't matter what it is, but find out what you're interested in and see what kind of people are doing what you're interested in and see how they got to do what they get to do. And you hear all these stories from them and you might realize, oh, I don't want to do that. And it's good to have something you don't want to do because then you have to mess with that anymore, right? So then you can like take another step forward or sideways, but you don't have to go backwards find your friends find find out who you can geek out with you know and and then the doors will open this has been our special edition podcast all thanks goes to paula finland and akumi kayama as well as the entire sienna solstice team check out our website siennasolstice.com for more information about us and our interviewees and be sure to look out for our third issue set to release on the summer solstice thanks for listening